Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting and important episode. Joining me on the podcast is Dr. Michael Mendez and Leo Goldsmith. Michael is an assistant professor of environmental planning and policy at the University of California, Irvine. Leo is a climate and health specialist at ICF, a global advisory and digital service provider. Mike and Leo are here to discuss a new paper they've written, Queer and Present Danger, Understanding the Disparate Impacts of Disasters on LGBTQ plus Communities. This obviously is very relevant to adaptation planning that is happening across the country. They talk about LGBTQ's unique vulnerability to disasters and how disaster relief is not factoring in this community. They discuss the problems this community is facing and then offer up some policy recommendations on how adaptation planning can be more inclusive. If you're interested in climate justice and holistic adaptation planning, this episode will be a beacon for you. Mike and Leo are doing important work and I'm excited to share their work with you. Okay, up to coming episodes. We'll discover how Colorado is approaching climate adaptation. Aaron Sikorsky, the director of the Center for Climate and Security, will come on to discuss national security and climate change. And I'm collaborating with the Natural Resource Defense Council and the Anthropocene Alliance on an episode where we talk with community members impacted firsthand by major flooding events and what actions they are taking in response. Also, Dr. Catherine Mock from the University of Miami joins to discuss the recently released IPCC report and the chapter on adaptation. Great stuff on the way. Hey, Adapters, I want to tell you about this fantastic documentary I've been watching. I get asked frequently how I get my climate information. Well, from a variety of sources like most of you, but at the moment I'm enjoying Solving for Zero, the search for climate innovation on Wondrium. There are 10 episodes and I just finished the one on climate adaptation. We're still figuring out what is climate adaptation and it's interesting to see how different groups frame it and explain it. This documentary has some fantastic messages. First off, a common theme in it, we're all in this together. They use some fascinating examples on how the agricultural sector is adapting crops to feed more people. They highlight some cool research on drought-resistant corn. It's an area I haven't really touched upon in the podcast. They also focus on other sectors getting their head around adaptation. I really enjoyed hearing their narrative around adaptation and the various opportunities this area holds in the climate arena. And that's just one episode of 10. I highly recommend you check out Solving for Zero on Wondrium. Wondrium is the subscription video service that is focused on making you a better you, a complete line of audio and video courses on hundreds of topics taught by university professors. There are documentaries to help you learn more about the world around you. Video tutorials teach you new hobbies like photography, cooking, crafting, and physical health and mental wellness content. And it's all in one subscription service. So it's not just climate change. All their content is world-class and credible, presented by professors, teachers, experts who know all their stuff, and it's always ad-free. You can sign up for Wondrium today. And yes, start by checking out Solving for Zero. Wondrium is offering my listeners a free trial of unlimited access. So you can check it out before committing a single dollar to it for 14 days. To get this offer, you need to visit wondrium.com slash adapts. Again, that's W O N. D-R-I-U-M dot com slash adapts. All right, check it out. Okay, now let's join Dr. Michael Mendez and Leo Goldsmith and learn how the LGBTQ community is adapting to climate change. Hey, adapters, welcome back. Today, we have a very exciting and important episode. Joining me is Dr. Michael Mendez. Michael is an assistant professor of environmental planning and policy at the University of California, Irvine. 
Also joining me is Leo Goldsmith. Leo is a climate and health specialist at ICF, a global advisory and digital service provider. Hi, guys. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi, Doug. Pleasure to be here as well. Thank you so much for inviting us here today. Well, I, I'm very excited to have this conversation. This is a very important topic, and I barely covered it in the podcast. So I'm just thrilled to have you guys on. We have a lot to cover. We're here to talk about this important subject, but it's inspired by a paper that the two of you wrote, and I'm going to read the title here, Queer and Present Danger, Understanding the Disparate Impacts of Disasters on LGBTQ Plus Communities. And that's a fantastic title, by the way. That's fantastic. <laughs> just great. I've been sharing that with people, and they just absolutely love it. So Leo, I'm going to start with you. You're the first author, right? Yes, I am the first author. Well, give us a little background of yourself. You're at there at ICF, but just can you tell us what you do there? And then let's we're going to jump into this, this paper. Yeah, absolutely. So I first want to begin by saying that everything that I say here is not endorsed by ICF or the U.S. Global Change Research Program. I'm a climate and health specialist at ICF, and I'm contracted out to the U.S. Global Change Research Program. And there is where I coordinate federal interagency group on climate change and human health. And also I help coordinate the human health chapter, the air quality chapter, and the indicators appendix of the fifth national climate assessment. Okay. And Mike, I know you were just on the podcast, but people will be listening to this at different times. Tell us a little bit about your background and the areas that you focus on. Yes, Doug, thank you again for having me and being able to have such a launching pad and broader audience to put forward some of this important policy research that's tackling some of the most socially vulnerable and stigmatized populations. Previously, it was on on undocumented migrants, and now it's looking at LGBTQ communities. So thank you. I'm an assistant professor of urban and environmental planning at the University of California, Irvine, where my research broadly looks at the intersection of climate change, public health, and environmental justice. And I have over a decade of public policy work working in Sacramento and in local government around climate change and specifically on legislation and the policymaking process. All right, Leah, we're going to go into the details of what's in the paper, but let's more broadly, what inspired you to write this paper? Tell us a little bit about the history. And Mike, I'm going to want you to weigh in too, because you were one of the co-authors of it. Yeah, absolutely. First, I want to say that this paper had its start at the Yale School of the Environment when I was a master's student there. I now currently have my master's in environmental management. Before going to the Yale School of the Environment, I did a lot of work in environmental justice academically and also in practice. That kind of stemmed from my personal experience growing up low-income and also as a Latinx person. As I was doing kind of like my work, I did food justice, um, helped with some projects in Africatown, Alabama. And then I also did restoration ecology in a mixed income Latinx neighborhood in New York City. While doing those projects, I started to think more about, you know, how does climate change kind of impact that kind of work and also impact marginalized populations and their ability to respond to climate change and those types of events. So when I went to the Yale School of the Environment, I kind of started to go more towards climate and health. I did courses in the Yale School of Environment and also the Yale School of Public Health. However, I wanted to still kind of keep that environmental justice kind of aspect to my work. And so Dr. Michael Mendez was teaching a course on environmental justice in the Yale School of the Environment. And so I took that course. And the way that he described environmental justice as something that is intersectional and also his kind of theory on climate embodiment, which basically just means that the lived experiences of those who have gone through climate events are valid, necessary, and extremely helpful 
as much as the climate science on climate impacts to kind of support responses to climate adaptation and climate impacts as well. At the time when I was doing environmental justice work, I had not come out as queer or trans, but while I was at Yale, I do. And so I I identify as queer and also as a transgender man. So I started to think more about how my, like those identities that I have not seen in climate and health, like research, literature, or in like disaster responses and policies, like how is it that people are thinking about that? Is there anything out there? Are queer and trans people just like disproportionately impacted by climate change? And so when I did that final paper for Mike, he saw that he was extremely supportive and offered to write a research paper on this topic, which was something that I didn't realize I could do. And that could be extremely helpful for LGBTQ plus communities. And so super grateful for Mike's support on this. Yeah, Mike, there's this story there, how you got involved, but literally in the writing of the paper, just tell us a little bit of your history. Great. Thank you for that, Leo. I just want to really highlight that there's a third author on this paper, Vanessa Raditz, and they also identify as queer. And so the three of us together are an all queer or LGBTQ plus authors and scholars. And Vanessa, along with Leo and myself, really contributed to the formation of this paper. And I'd like to thank Vanessa for their help. But the real genesis, of course, was Leo when he wrote this paper in my class. And, you know, obviously it was a graduate paper, it needed work. But that main premise and the idea of how can we take these ideas of a disaster and disparate impacts to the LGBTQ community, I had seen it in little bits and pieces, more in like gender and sexuality studies articles, and particularly in the international context. And so it was very high theory, very abstract, nothing really policy relevant. And so I approached Leo about it. And I'm like, nobody's written about this, particularly in the US context of how federal, state and local governments are creating discriminatory disaster infrastructure and practices. And we really need to target practitioners, not scholars, but practitioners, urban planners. I'm an urban planner by training. And urban planners at the local county and city level are the ones doing our disaster plans. And for the most part, a lot of the emergency management, along with other uh, disciplinary experts. And so we worked together. It actually took us a long time because Leah was starting a new job. I was starting a new job also at Irvine. And then we brought in a third co-author, Vanessa. And so it took us a while to do this, but we really had that main goal. How can we distill this information to practitioners, make it policy relevant? And because it took us that long time and we worked great together as a research team, the three of us, we really has an impact with reaching individuals at the local, state and federal level, practitioners, which was our goal. Awesome. That's a great answer for both of you. So this this next section, relatively short, we're just we're setting the groundwork, okay? Just so just kind of keep that in mind and I'm going to jump in between the both of you. So for my listeners, it might seem obvious what some of these acronyms are or the different communities, but we are going to be there to provide the, the understanding what everything is. And Leah, I want you to start. You're so in the space, it probably just seems everyone knows what it is, but LGBTQ+, what really does that stand for? Yeah, so LGBTQ plus basically stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and the plus at the very end, it's just meant to incorporate everybody else who is a part of, or at least outside of what would be considered heterosexual or cisgender. And so cisgender is defined as somebody who identifies as their assigned sex at birth. And so this could include transgender 
or non-binary individuals who would be outside of that definition of cisgender. And Leah, I'm going to stick with you too. Both of you had just mentioned the word queer. I had mentioned this before. For the longest time, that was for being a straight male. I couldn't use that word. It was a derogatory term, but it's it has new meaning. And, and I guess people have just evolved. Could you tell us what it means in the context of what we're talking about here? Yes. So queer basically just means anything that is outside of what is considered heteronormative. And so that's basically outside of what is heterosexual or cisgender. Of course, older generations, because of the kind of more negative connotations and discriminatory uses of that word a long time ago, it can still be a word that older generations do not like to use or identify as as it's primarily used among younger generations, so millennials, Gen Z, and has been used primarily as a way of reclaiming that identity as something that is horrible and awful, but, you know, using it and saying that, no, like, this is great and this is how we identify and we want to celebrate that. I love that long time ago, older generations. That's me. <laughs> All right, great. But that's great. And so I just want to also confirm because I am notorious for tripping up on acronyms and stuff, but you can't use queer and LGBTQ interchangeably, or can I? That's a really good question. I think it depends on the context of what you're using it. Using queer doesn't necessarily is a bit more broad compared to LGBTQ+. When you're talking about communities, you would want to use the the first one that I mentioned, LGBTQ+. But if you're just talking about, you know, more casually or among friends, like queer is fine to use as well. But yeah, it depends on context. I also like to add that it's also a form of a, a political project in terms of its usage, in terms of a social movement, in terms of protest. So oftentimes when you do see say pride marches or other types of LGBTQ related marches, they increasingly use the word queer because of that very nature, what Leo mentioned about reclaiming it, about making it something that is positive and visible. So it's in a sense, it also has a political connotation to it as well. And so, Mike, why have you on? Well, you, you've mentioned this before, but I also think this is important. And I was certainly guilty of this kind of thinking. What is the myth of gay affluence? Because I think it's important into a lot of the points you're making in this paper. Yeah. So when we started this paper and why I was so attracted to it is because of that intersectional nature about sort of that untold story of these disparate impacts, like my previous research on undocumented migrants, that was how our disaster policies were rendering invisible undocumented Latino indigenous migrants. And not because they, they aren't visible. Of course, they're not. They've been living in many communities for generations and not decades, and, but they're rendered invisible in our context of public policy that doesn't and address them or specific to them. And that really goes the same uh, with LGBTQ communities, particularly from an intersectional standpoint. We often think of gay people, LGBTQ people, as being mainly white, affluent men, cis a male men, like if you will and grace, queer eye for the straight guy, sort of that idea that all these individuals have a lot of wealth, therefore they're not socially vulnerable onto these two impacts uh, that, that or social injustices. But the data that we do in our paper really shows that those variables that makes any community more vulnerable to disasters, such as poverty, incarceration, public health disparities, a lack of education, housing insecurity, immigration status are all aspects uh, that unfortunately the LGBTQ community disproportionately has. 
And it's important to note that uh, people of color represent about 35 or 40, correct me if I'm wrong, Leo, of queer people. So or LGBTQ people. So about 40 or so percent of LGBTQ people in the United States identify as a person of color. So Leah, this question's for you. And it, it got me thinking, you think of the LGBTQ community and it, it represents different people here. How cohesive is this group? Because in the context of this paper, it's used, that terminology is used all the time. But again, just as Mike described, okay, let's say affluent gay men or lesbian women. Do you feel like it's a really cohesive community when you're talking in the context of what we're talking disaster relief? How does that all work? Yeah, that's a really great question. So as Mike was saying before, LGBTQ plus communities are extremely diverse along lines of race, age, gender, ability, etc. And, you know, depending on those intersectional and marginalized identities, they will be impacted differentially through climate impacts. For example, um, LGBTQ plus communities are highly represented in homeless populations, impoverished, those who have chronic illnesses, those who have mental illnesses, incarcerated, and also lack of access to healthcare. And so as a LGBTQ plus person who may be housing insecure and are homeless, you know, trying to access shelters might be difficult, especially if they're transgender, because they may not be allowed to go into the shelter that aligns with their gender identity. And so that kind of intersection there kind of shows how, depending on the different identities that you hold and embody, how those different policies might interact in terms of like disasters occurring or a climate event. And I can go into more detail as well, if you would like. Well, I think we'll get to that in in some of the other questions that I'm going to prompt you with. If I can add to that, that great explanation that Leo provided, it's also thinking about these individuals, particularly uh, people of color that LGBTQ individuals, before disaster, they're experiencing multiple forms of social stigma, discrimination, both race-based and sexuality-based or gender-based. And when a disaster happens, those forms of discrimination uh, and discriminatory practices that they experience every day are only heightened or exasperated during disaster. In essence, they're, they're experiencing a hyper form of marginalization. For many, this could be the worst p- time of their life preceding a disaster. And you go into shelters, you go in and deal with uh, first responders, and you may encounter discriminatory actions from them that are heightened even more during disaster, particularly, as we'll talk about later, is faith-based organizations that often attribute a natural, quote-unquote, natural disasters to those who sin or those are LGBTQ. So we increasingly see that after wildfires, extreme weather events, and storms that extremist faith-based organizations attribute those disasters for people being gay. Yeah, and we'll get into it for sure. I've, I've got some questions around that. And it was more an issue, and this is me just learning to the cohesiveness of the community. And so let's say a relatively affluent lesbian woman, are they feeling like solidarity with a really impoverished transgender man or woman? And I, it's just curious as, as you try to get you know policy reform and all that, when it comes, let's say, gay marriage, there's a lot of solidarity in the community. Do you see that as much when it comes to topics like this? Yes, that's a really great question. Unfortunately, I think that particularly along many lines of identities that primarily race tends to come first 
due to systemic discrimination against people of color and systemic racism. So I think there's there's less of a thought of how primarily, you know, those who are white and affluent and queer, what kind of issues are impacting queer and trans people of color or other queer and trans people with different identities that they hold. And this was uh, seen a lot, actually, with the push for same-sex marriage, where many white, wealthy gays and lesbians were pushing for same-sex marriage. However, there were other queer and trans people uh, with different identities that were saying like, well, we still don't have protection for employment, no protections for housing, Mm -hmm. no protection for health. Like, why aren't you also fighting for those, especially because those who, as we were saying before, there is a high representation of, you know, unemployment, housing insecurity, health disparities within queer and trans communities. However, it doesn't tend to affect those who may be white and wealthy who come from the queer community. There's also a long history of discrimination from uh, lesbians and gays towards trans people. And there are organizations that specifically work against transgender individuals trying to push for legislations that are anti-trans. So I do think that there is still a lot of work to be done to kind of create that cohesion, but along lines of race and class and also gender identity. Mike, question for you. This is talking about disaster relief, but how did the whole issue of climate change and climate adaptation inform the work that you were trying to do here. And I guess even it's a future work research direction that you're doing, but how did it inform these discussions? I guess going back to that idea that that LGBTQ community is very diverse and have a very uh, diverse socioeconomic status or SES, and that 14 million LGBTQ people live uh, throughout the United States in both urban and rural places. And that climate change is happening everywhere where LGBTQ communities live. And these wildfires in particular in California were happening. And I was doing that initial research around undocumented migrants. And I had Leo's a paper in mind. We had agreed to, to start to do this. And then in my own research on undocumented migrants, I started to encounter transgender farm workers that were experiencing disaster impacts, didn't have places to go, felt uncomfortable going to shelters, didn't have a safe space to go to coalesce and get a disaster aid because of their undocumented status and then plus because they're transgender. So I started to see that and really acknowledging that our system for disaster relief really leaves behind so many populations. And then as we prepare and adapt our community, that disaster relief, you know, moving and pivoting towards climate adaptation of being proactive of how do we safeguard our our communities from climate-induced impacts or disasters like wildfires, heat waves, drought, and extreme weather events, other extreme weather events. It just kept on coming up, and I would see it in different contexts and different geographies as well. Leos, you guys gave an example earlier about just discrimination, this kind of face-to-face discrimination that maybe a transgender person is encountering. But what about the policies that you've reviewed? Was there any evidence of explicit discrimination, or is it just discrimination by omission. What what was the sort of patterns that you've been seeing? And I'm sure it's different state by state or even federal policies. What were patterns in that respect? Yes. So first I'll kind of mention a bit more on the federal level. So the Department of Housing and Urban Development underneath them sits the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. 
They do have a non-discrimination protection policy that's referred to as Section 308 of the Robert T. Stafford Act. And within that, they use the term sex in terms of protection. And so it really depends on the administration that is in power at the time, whether or not they are a more liberal administration in which they would identify the term sex as sexual orientation and gender identity to the full meaning of that definition, or it could be a more conservative administration in which they identify sex as uh, there's only man and woman in terms of gender, and it's the one that you were assigned at birth, and also prioritize heterosexual relationships. And so what tends to occur, especially in a more uh, conservative administration, the omission of sexual orientation and gender identity is very explicit, as was seen in the Trump administration when they quietly started to remove all mention of LGBTQ plus terms and definitions from their federal websites, and also removed all guidelines for temporary emergency housing shelters, even though they kept the rule that Obama had that said that gender identity is protected for temporary emergency housing. They removed all the guidelines, so it made it so that temporary emergency shelters and the staff there had no guidelines to follow and what that even means to not discriminate against LGBTQ plus individuals. But also there was nothing there for LGBTQ plus individuals to say that they were being discriminated against or put in a grievance and that type of process. Also, in terms of kind of omitting LGBTQ plus families are not represented within disaster response and policies. LGBTQ plus families can be defined as genetic or legal relative, but it can also mean chosen family. And so chosen family can be defined as a group of people who are your very close, unnecessary social support, very similar to genetic or legal relatives that are just as valid and extremely just necessary for LGBTQ plus individuals, especially because LGBTQ plus individuals, you know, tend to get disowned or are just not accepted by their families, especially, you know, for like the older generations in which, you know, the only family that they may have is chosen family. And so how that kind of played out in a lot of these disasters, like during like hurricanes and wildfires, especially before same-sex marriage was passed in 2015, is that there were queer families that had to either pretend to be siblings in order to receive help. Otherwise, they were separated and there were queer parents who were separated from their children because they weren't able to say, for example, that you know the person, their partner who may have legal custody of their child couldn't prove that they had a like legitimate relationship in the eyes of like these policies and laws to stay with their child. And, and it was the same for, you know, even like for healthcare when, you know, you had a partner who was hurt by a hurricane or a wildfire. And you weren't able to go see your partner because you didn't, they did not see chosen family as a legitimate means uh, or a legitimate idea of what a family is under those policies. And then just adding on my my last point, kind of circling back to what Mike was saying about faith-based organizations, because there's no na- like nationwide anti-discrimination policies for LGBTQ plus individuals, faith-based, I, I will say first that faith-based organizations are the first responders during disasters, and which is 
great because they provide so much, you know, food, shelter, housing, and other social support for people during disasters that are is extremely necessary and steps in for where, you know, public funding may be de- decreasing. And so they kind of like kick in first before state and federal and other types of organizations start providing disaster response and aid. However, there is a long-standing kind of like historical injustices and discrimination towards LGBTQ plus communities, especially in this country. And that's not to say that all faith-based organizations are discriminatory and that there are no LGBTQ plus individuals who are religious, but it's important to note that religious leaders and religious politicians, as well as organizations, have always kind of blamed LGBTQ plus communities for natural disasters occurring and saying that, you know, that impact is deserved. You know, you guys keep going in the face space. I'm going to have to jump to that section right now because let's just dig into it because you're transitioning to that, Leo. Sure. Mike, let's, what are some examples? And I think you guys used one earlier, but what's an example of discrimination, I guess, even on the ground that you might, like a disaster relief agency might do with someone in the LGBTQ community? What, What does that look like? Yeah, first and foremost, it's important to acknowledge, as Leo was indicating earlier, that there is no federal law that explicitly uh, protects LGBTQ communities as a protected class during disasters, during our Federal Emergency Management Agency laws, the Stafford Act in particular. And we know much of the funding, it comes from the federal government funneled down to a state and local government. And there's no requirement right now that any of that grant funding is contingent on having anti-discriminatory policies around LGBTQ communities. So in rural, uh, more conservative places, particularly in the South of the United States, there's increasingly hostility and legislation that's anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ. Just in Florida, we all know about the, the don't say gay bill. I just said it. <laughs> Anti-transgender bills. So we need a federal approach to ensure that all the state and local funding and programs and policies are anti-discriminatory. So that's first and foremost what we need to have a uniform protection for this community. The second is uh, really looking at in terms of faith-based organizations, as Leo was talking about, yes, uh, they're they're very approximate to communities. They're important to our disaster uh, infrastructure and mutual aid, but it's also important that we have secular choices in terms of our mutual aid services as well as our sh- shelters for individuals that are LGBTQ that have a a bad history with faith-based organizations with people that may not ascribe to any religious belief, or even individuals that were abused by the Catholic Church. And in having these, again, a disastrous poly time in a person's life, they're at their worst. And triggering them with these organizations and not having, in addition to faith-based organizations, secular options, it really puts these individuals at even a more vulnerable standpoint. Those are some issues in terms of Other terms of discriminatory actions, Salvation Army has a long history of being anti-gay, having anti-gay policies, discriminating against LGBT employees, prohibiting them to talk about they have their own internal don't say gay bills. 
that's been documented in several news media accounts. Also, the, uh, the New York City Human Rights Commission, I believe, a couple of years ago, fined the Salvation Army and their uh, housing and dr- drug rehab centers for excluding LGBT transgender people in particular. That just shows in terms of a history of how some of these organizations and their everyday practices can be a- anti-gay and discriminatory and that how these can carry over during a disaster. Yeah, and I'm familiar with some of those policies. And, and guess what I'm getting at, too, is sort of explicit actions on the ground. And maybe, Lee, you want to weigh in, too. And so if there's those internal policies, and a lot of these are just insidious policies, but literally a hurricane hits and think of, oh, they're going to these groups are feeding people. And then but then again, you get into the issues of housing and access to the the resources there. Are the this were this interfaces actually with people to people? What are because I'm just trying to get out like, where does it really rear its ugly head in regards? To this is the kind of the invisible policies behind the scenes. But what, what are you hearing out there? What are some of those examples of where the communities they're not able to get that basic disaster relief? Yes. So. There's quite a few stories that I can tell about you know, what happens when um, disasters hit. There's one kind of really stark example where after Hurricane Katrina, there were two Black trans women who were using a shelter, temporary emergency shelter in Houston, Texas, and they were trying to just use the bathroom. One was trying to take a shower and in the bathroom that that they, you know, identified with their gender identity, and they were both arrested for doing so. Um, so one of them was a teenager, and so she was sent to juvie, juvenile detention. And uh, luckily, she had a family member that could come and pick her up. However, the other person, who was an adult, was sent to jail and was told that they wouldn't be able to get a hearing for about six months or so, just for trying to take a shower. And this was all happening in the midst of Hurricane Katrina, like an immense disaster. Luckily, the human rights campaign was able to get her out in six days. But that kind of goes to show just, you know, the added kind of discrimination and um, immense amount of just horrible trauma on top of a disaster can occur, especially for transgender individuals. There were also, in after Hurricane Sandy, the Aliforni Center, which primarily is kind of like a, a homeless shelter that also provides resources for LGBTQ plus youth of color. They got hit really hard during Hurricane Sandy and the entire building was com- completely waterlogged and destroyed. This led to basically a gap of three months where all of these that they were hosting within their building didn't have anywhere else to go. They couldn't basically track, you know, where were these youths going and where were they staying? Um, there were trans youths who lost their identification papers, such as like birth certificates and IDs, which are extremely difficult to get as somebody who is trans. Only about 11% of transgender individuals actually have all of their identification changed to their proper gender identity and also an updated name. The homeless youths, especially who are disproportionately LGBTQ+. About 40% of homeless youths identify as LGBTQ+, 
were then more susceptible to at-risk behavior, especially since they didn't have like a place to go. And then also during Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Irma in Puerto Rico, many pharmacies were shut down. And so LGBTQ plus individuals, as I mentioned before, who have higher rates of chronic illness, respiratory illnesses such as asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, or cardiovascular disease, were not able to obtain the necessary prescriptions that they needed. And this also included, you know, like HIV medications like PrEP and PEP. And then for transgender individuals, we're not able to access necessary hormone replacement therapy as well. Mike, the issue of faith-based organizations, this is such a tricky thing too, as you guys both described. Sometimes they are there, the first ones on the ground dealing with some of these regional disasters. And yet there's some of them deal with discriminatory. And I think Mike used an example of the South. I mean, are there particular religious faiths that are have a pattern of this? And I think people need to appreciate the unique vulnerability of the LGBTQ community because I could go after a disaster as a white, straight male, not a believer in any way, and I probably wouldn't have too much difficulty getting all sorts of disaster relief support, right? Uh, yes, that's an excellent question. I'd rather not highlight any specific okay. denomination of a faith-based organization, but the Pew Research Center has some great organizations looking at, I believe it's the six most prominent faiths or institutions in the United States and sort of uh, LGBTQ communities' perception of how anti-gay they are. And we cite that in the paper. And about I think it's about four or six that the Pew uh, Research Center highlights. But the most egregious examples against them for fundamentalist evangelicals that are using this as a platform to scare individuals about a, a disaster and scapegoat and place blame on individuals. There was a religious pastor from California and Nevada that was pointing towards the uh, the extreme wildfire events that was happening in California and explicitly saying it was because of the LGBTQ rights and protections that California has bestowed on this population. And we've seen this many times after major events like Hurricane Sandy, hurricanes in Texas, Ann Coulter, who's, you know, sort of a pop icon, conservative pundit, often said that she believed that the extreme weather events and storms that was hitting Austin and other parts of Texas happened because it was more likely because they had a gay lesbian mayor than climate change. So essentially, she believed that those storms were happening because God was mad more likely because there was a, a lesbian mayor than attributed it to climate change. Oh, nonsense. Well, I appreciate you can't, you don't want to really single out individual groups. And I, you did mention evangelical fundamentalists, and I will do it. I will take it upon myself because we can see it across other policies, but we don't need to get to that right now. But I want to pivot here and, and get into some of the policy recommendations that you guys make in the paper. But just starting that, you had mentioned earlier, Mike, about at the state level, we are just seeing a lot of state government, the more conservative states, putting out all sorts of anti-trans bills and then the don't say gay bill in Florida. It's just there's this momentum to them. There's a viciousness to it. And the reason I bring that up is as you guys are here rationally trying to argue like, all right, let's change some of these policies to consider the LGBTQ community. It seems in some ways we're going the opposite direction. And let's say you're an urban planner, mid-level bureaucrat, and you want to be sensitive to these issues that you bring up. But then all of a sudden you start including language that specifically, okay, we need to protect the LGBT community and they almost become a target. And 
I'm obviously not arguing that you shouldn't do it, but as you guys must appreciate, like you have to kind of rethink, how do we get these protections in there? How do we do that when there's this vicious momentum going on out there? And I, I know it's very controversial, but it's happening. And so what you guys are proposing here is all very rational and logical and compassionate, but what do you do in the face of these movements that could really undercut a lot of people that want to do the right thing? And I guess maybe you both might want to take a crack at that question. And maybe you kind of bring up some of your policy recommendations too in your answers. But Leah, let's start with you. Sure. Could I quickly provide a stat to what Mike was talking about in his last answer? So I just wanted to add on that according to the LGBT Americans Attitudes Survey, 93% of LGBTQ plus individuals considered one or more of the six major religions to be homophobic and or transphobic. So I think that kind of speaks to perceptions of LGBTQ plus communities towards faith-based organizations and may even lead to even in disasters if there are faith-based organizations that aren't discriminatory, that they're less likely to actually seek resources and support there as well. I'll take a crack, Leo, and then Leo, you could be a weak person for me. Yeah, so I think this is a question that we really want to hit hard, that this is takes a federal approach. This takes a national perspective, that our federal government, our main institution that provides resources and training and capacity for disasters, our federal government, FEMA, needs to take a stronger and explicit focus on protecting all populations, especially the most stigmatized, socially stigmatized in our society. When we unrolled out these research findings earlier this year or late last year, we had a webinar and we had other LGBTQ uh, scholars also speak. And then we invited FEMA and FEMA represented attended our webinar. And we were very happy because that was the first time to our knowledge that a FEMA representative ever attended and spoke at an event explicitly focused on LGBTQ communities in the context of disaster. So that was sort of a watershed moment. I have FEMA for that individual to request a specific permission to attend and comment. And so again, it takes a federal approach. And then California is often seen like New York and maybe a couple other places as being this bastion of progressivism and very welcoming to LGBTQ uh, communities. But it wasn't until 2019, I believe, that California adopted cultural competency legislation that included one sentence about LGBTQ communities as being socially vulnerable. So it was just one sentence, very nominal, but it included with the elderly, with people of color, with people with disabilities as groups that local governments, counties in particular, needed to reach out and create relationships and include them in the disaster planning process or even climate adaptation planning process before these impacts happen. So that was a nominal piece in a a progressive place like California. It didn't happen until 2019. So that's why we need a strong federal approach, but also acknowledge that the states that do have more political backing and support for LGBTQ communities, they have to step up and they have to do these at the state level, at the subnational level for others can, can learn and they could point to them as being an experiment that that was valid and successful. So it, it's going to take, if in an absence of federal action, just like climate change, it's going to take subnational actors pushing forward these. This is a climate experiment to include LGBTQ communities as a group first and hardest hit, particularly people of color. LGBTQ is important and it's an experiment 
itself and a proof of concept that we're hoping through these research findings and policy briefings and through your great podcasts, we're able to reach a broader audience of practitioners and policymakers in particular. All right, Mike, that's fantastic. And, and Lee, if you want to add anything to that, but just prompting you as part of the policy recommendation in your paper, you talk about convening a national LGBTQ plus disaster task force. Could that play a role in some of these things that Mike just talked about? Yeah, absolutely. There definitely needs to be more focus in the federal government where they take an interagency approach to identifying how is it that the federal agencies and especially FEMA can start to incorporate some of the recommendations that Mike said on a federal level to actually incorporate within their programs and activities. There is a bit kind of going on right now with um, the Biden administration just put out a kind of a memo for the Transgender Day of Visibility where he just further said that they are going to be committing to providing more protections and including more data collection for sexual orientation and gender identity within their federal surveys and also federal activities. That also includes FEMA. And so having a a working group, especially within FEMA on LGBTQ plus communities can start to figure out, you know, Who is it that they need to be reaching out to? Which community organizations should they be reaching out to? How are they going to start incorporating sexual orientation and gender identity within their programs? So, for example, they have the National Risk Index, which overlays hazard data with social vulnerability data. However, their social vulnerability data doesn't actually incorporate sexual orientation and gender identity. And until they start to focus more specifically on LGBTQ plus communities, the not having that kind of focused approach and kind of focusing widely on vulnerable populations, it's very easy for LGBTQ plus communities to kind of still be left behind and not taken or is not seen as a priority within the activities and programs that they do. I am having to cover disaster relief a lot more in this podcast than I thought, but it's obviously very relevant because it's what we're seeing with climate change happening today and people dealing with it. So I've had to learn a lot. And one of the common themes is that people in the disaster relief, one of the just ongoing problems is dealing with people in the long term, the permanent resettlement, or do they need their homes are destroyed? And how do you got to put people up and provide help? And how long the goal always is to get people off this relief and this aid as quickly as you can in in a ways that actually helping them. And so I think of, you know, the LGBTQ community and all the inherent problems that they have to deal with in the first place. It's just, it's just tragic mental health issues, access to health care, the just discrimination that they're dealing with. And then you bring them into the disaster relief. And this is a very practical question. I'm not trying to be, okay, you're not supposed to help them, but I guess maybe you're getting or getting at people that had long standing problems. Now you bring them in and they might even need more relief in their longer term. And so Groups that might not want to discriminate, but they're still in the business of like, we need to just get people off this aid as quickly as possible. But we're here we have a uniquely vulnerable population. Do you have some examples? What what, what would you say to that? If that makes sense, I hope it doesn't come off as too cruel or anything. It's more of just the practical nature of providing disaster relief. I think disaster relief is fundamental to our society. It's part of our social safety net. It's part of our social integration of our society. Disaster relief is not just about ensuring that individuals are able to recover from disaster, but for more of a practical standpoint, how are they able to bounce back and thrive and, and be better off than before disaster? So 
our disaster aid infrastructure, along with climate adaptation and other sources with a strong equity lens, provides an opportunity to improve the life circumstances of individuals and in particular reveal the structural inequality, structural racism, and inequalities that these individuals are experiencing on a daily basis. And with my undocumented migrant work, and I and I, I guess with this one as well, I always start with the premise. If you really want to tackle disaster risk reduction, it starts with the social integration of marginalized populations before disaster. So that's looking at their occupational health and safety, the way they're exploited, discriminated sexually or racially are excluded from our education on our healthcare services. So really looking at those social determinants of health, housing, our physical environments, uh, the, the access to programs. So for me, I see this disaster and climate adaptation arena as an opportunity to break down silos and barriers and to really fundamentally think progressively and transformatively of what we want our society to be and look like and be very quite honest and frank. Who, who are we deciding are worthy disaster victims and really being upfront about the political choices of who we are making of who we decide and value to protect from disasters and the impacts of climate change. Those are political and explicit choices that our society and politicians and policymakers and practitioners are making on a daily basis. All right, Mike, fantastic answer. And I think it goes back to our conversation about undocumented workers that the sort of the naive positive in me saying adaptation is like you just described an opportunity to deal with some of these longstanding problems and with the LGBTQ community. It's it's maybe it's a more holistic adaptation that offers a chance to kind of provide them with support across the, the board on things that they've dealt with in, I guess, longer term. Leo, there has been some recent action on this that the Biden administration just released some equity action plans. I don't know if you've been able to dig much into those, but it did give some guidance specifically to FEMA, right? Yes, they did. So they're basically asking for FEMA to not only only incorporate equity within their employment and hiring practices, but also in the activities and projects that they undertake as well. So reaching out to different communities and incorporating their input to their emergency uh, preparedness and disaster response and aid. I want you both to take a crack at this. Again, it comes down to a lot of my listeners to be their policymakers at the highest level or just on the ground urban planners. What advice would you give to someone who wants to do the right thing here? They want to start incorporating the LGBT community in their basic adaptation plan at the city level or at the state or county level. What should they do? And again, also avoiding the conflict that might come looking toward them because they're being sensitive to this population? Should they just ignore those kind of voices? But Mike, let's start with you just really quickly. What kind of advice would you give them? My advice is, again, let's start at, I know this is a controversial issue, but we need policy innovators. We need climate change experimenters. And we've seen it in terms of mitigation, greenhouse gas mitigations. So we need this on the climate adaptation sphere as well, the early leaders. And I would really love to see, you know, I would like to see at the federal level, of course, because that's where most of the money is coming from. But I would like to see at the subnational level that groups are starting to allocate resources to LGBTQ centers to qualify as emergency centers, as 
disaster resilience centers. So these are hubs where people can go to, to prepare for during and after disaster. I think that would be a very innovative approach. There's been one or two cases. We mentioned them in the paper of where LGBTQ centers have been qualified and certified as a disaster emergency shelter. So I think that's one avenue from a practical standpoint is of particularly those planners, those practitioners and states and localities that do have uh, additional support, just like we we have done in the uh, GHD mitigation world, carbon mitigation world, we need innovators, we need experimenters in those spaces where they are safer to do it, to be experimenting for others to learn from them, and that maybe could have that trickling effect. But from that more national level, uh, for those out at the at FEMA, as uh, they're trying to get comments on the equity plan, yes, let's fund LGBTQ centers from the national perspective as well. So I think that's one very concrete thing that can be done in the near term. Leo? So just to add on, I think those who are working for like disaster response and aid and also climate adaptation at a local level, your main job is to mitigate risk and harm from disasters and climate events. And so in order to do that effectively, LGBTQ plus communities need to be a part of your planning processes, how you're going about preparedness, communications, and all of that as well. Because the LGBTQ plus community, you know, has historically had to only rely on each other in the absence of federal leadership and also local and state leadership. And so there's a lot of resources and resilience to tap into within that community to to tap into. In terms of kind of like the different types of trainings and workshops that could be hosted at more of a local level, this could be workshops and trainings that specifically target LGBTQ plus individuals to kind of learn about, you know, what are their risks in terms of disasters, how they can prepare in emergencies, how they can get communications and outreach out to their friends and their families so that they know what they need to do in the event of a disaster. This could be in terms of how to, what resources are there and where to go, how to advocate for themselves during disasters as well. And also, you know, how to train to be, you know, disaster responder during those times as well. This is a very sobering issue, a very important issue, but I do like to leave my listeners on, on a positive note, even though a lot of things are sort of stacked against this. What leaves you positive about the work that you're doing here, Mike? It's making the invisible visible and telling the stories on the ground stories of what the, these disparate disaster impacts look like. And when, as I told you, when we did that webinar. We rolled out our research findings in December of last year. We had FEMA participate the first time they ever did that. That was a watershed moment. We also had media inquiries. We had NPR radio station that did multiple, I'm not one, but multiple news radio stories, as well as digital print, multiple digital print stories on this subject. And they actually went out to the fields and highlighted the transgender undocumented farm workers that I spoke about earlier and really looking at that inequality in climate and disaster from a very different and unconventional lens and exposing so many 
individuals to the, uh, this aspect of social inequality in, in our policies and programs around disaster and climate. And I was talking to the reporter, and that was one of his highest clicks for both on social media and online for the actual NPR KQED station. So uh, just telling these stories is, for me, uh, such a pivotal and important aspect of the research that Leo and Vanessa Raditz, who's at the University of Georgia, that we're all doing. And I'm really encouraged by the response that we're getting. Okay, Leo, what about you? Yeah, first and foremost, this type of research is something that is, again, heavily under-researched. This is one of the first research articles, at least in the United States, that focuses on this topic. And so there's a lot of gaps there in terms of understanding how is it that queer and trans people or LGBTQ plus communities are going to be impacted by disasters and trying to get that word out, but also that there are many other connections that could be made and need to be made in the climate space, such as how do heat waves affect LGBTQ plus individuals? How does cold snaps affect LGBTQ plus individuals? And what are the responses there? And are people actually reaching out to those communities and how they can do so? And so, as Mike was saying, I have had very similar experiences where this type of research has gotten a a lot of interest from people who have never thought about these connections before, even LGBTQ plus individuals who never thought about those connections or realized that like, oh, that could also happen to me or my friends or my family or LGBTQ plus individuals who finally see themselves in this type of work. And so it's just very, very positive response and looking forward to seeing kind of where this, where this goes in the future. Last question. And Mike, you know what it is. If you could recommend any guest to come on the podcast, who would it be? I would recommend Ezra Romero. He's the reporter from NPR KQED in San Francisco that covered this issue, but he's doing so many interesting, non-conventional climate change stories that always reading. So I think he would, yeah, I don't know if you have journalists before, but they're just like researchers and they're on the ground and really tackling some of these climate change stories from the front lines. Yeah, I love having journalists on. I do it. And yeah, we could just talk shop and it's it's awesome. Okay, Leah, you were given a few moments there to kind of think on your own. So if you could recommend anyone to come on, who would it be? Yeah, absolutely. So I would recommend Precious Brady Davis, who is a deputy press secretary for CRS Clubs Beyond the Coal Campaign. They have done a lot of work in the environment, but they also identify as trans and has done a lot of trans activism and has actually written about the intersection between the two as well. From that standpoint, highly recommend her. I don't think she gets enough attention, but she is great. And Mike, you actually have a big announcement. It's it's happening right around now, but what is it? Yes, I'm so honored. I've been bestowed the Andrew Carnegie Fellowship to carry on this research on disparate impacts on disasters, on documented migrants and other socially vulnerable populations. So it's one of the biggest awards you can get in academia. And so I'm just honored that the Carnegie Corporation and Foundation really is fully behind this type of research, this very transformative and public-facing research that I'm actively engaging with community groups. And just very grateful for that opportunity to get 
that recognition from the Carnegie Foundation and to be able to amplify this research even more and turn this into a book. And so I'll spend a sabbatical year further researching these issues and creating a book. And I'd like to thank the Carnegie. Thank you. Wow, that's fantastic. Congratulations. That way. Yeah, tremendous honor. Yeah, and I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. What a, what, what a treat to have you on. And you'll need to come back on the podcast once you write that book, okay? Yeah, great. Thank you. Okay, guys, you guys are doing really important work. This is a fascinating subject. I have learned a ton in any way that I can contribute and help explain and demystify this issue I want to. Thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having us. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Doug. This was a really great opportunity and very happy to be here. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Dr. Michael Mendez and Leo Goldsmith for coming on the podcast. What they are doing is really important. It was certainly an eye-opening conversation for me. I'd like to take a moment to further their message. You'd have to be living in a hole not to know what's going on in parts of the country and how some states are aggressively passing cruel and coordinated anti-LGBTQ legislation. It's an insidious movement picking on those most vulnerable among us. As Mike eloquently shared, adaptation planning actually offers an opportunity to plan for our most vulnerable citizens. I think some of the recommendations to make sure groups that are hostile to the LGBTQ community are critical, be it federal policies that are explicit in their protections, to training of disaster aid groups, or making sure federal money is directed to secular relief organizations, especially in more hostile areas like the South. These are logical, reasonable, and compassionate policy approaches Mike and Leo have laid out. And for those of you involved in adaptation planning, there's a lot of interest in how to integrate climate justice into these plans. Even acknowledging the LGBTQ community in your adaptation plans is important. It doesn't require a rewrite. Even a few simple sentences in local, state, or federal plans is important. And if hostile political leadership comes in and requests this language be stricken, at least it's there, and that act of removing that language can be documented and brought to others' attention. And for those who are just trying to create a science-based adaptation plan and aren't looking for controversy, keep in mind factoring in the LGBTQ community allows you to have a more holistic adaptation plan. If you're considering these groups, it inevitably will benefit other members of your community. We are just scratching the surface of adaptation planning. So for those of you responsible for this type of work, don't exclude these groups most vulnerable to disasters and climate change. Let's bake in some protections for the LGBTQ community in adaptation plans. If you want to learn more on how you can do this or examples, definitely check out the show notes for this episode. Thanks again to Mike and Leo. Okay, so it's been a while, but I recently heard from a university professor who's using America Adapts episodes in his college curricula. I know professors listen frequently to the podcast. Just a reminder, consider using the podcast as part of your coursework. Your students will love it. There's a webpage with an embedded player for each episode, just in case your students don't have a favorite podcast app and regularly listen to podcasts. The archive covers a ton of subjects, urban planning, national security, public health, climate communications, you name it, we cover it. And don't forget to check out Wondrium, the streaming service where you can watch or listen to lectures, programs, and courses. There's a free two-week trial. Use the link generated for the podcast, wondrium.com slash adapts. Check it out. You can find a link in my show notes. Okay, so for those of you interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring a whole podcast episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with some climate professionals around the world. I frequently go on location to record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the work you are doing. I've done these with various groups like UPenn Wharton, WWF, Harvard, NRDC, UCLA, the University of Florida, and some corporate clients. 
It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation space. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into the communication strategies. Previous sponsors have used the podcast to communicate with their own members, board members, and even funders. My previous sponsors have found the process really fun because there's a lot of creativity involved. Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together. Please reach out and let's have a conversation so you can learn more. Okay, final housekeeping. If you're new to this podcast and you're catching up on all things adaptation, take a look in the podcast library. We've covered a lot of ground, climate reparations, managed retreat, climate finance, national security, indigenous issues. That's just scratching the surface. Definitely go check it out. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out, folks. I speak a lot, and you're going to enjoy this. I've been doing some keynote presentations. They're a lot of fun. I give a great presentation, folks. I've seen a lot of bad presentations. No matter what sector you represent and you're looking at exposing your members to the issue of climate adaptation, I've got some entertaining and informative stories to tell. So definitely check it out. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. And for my regular listeners, podcasts rely on word of mouth. Please take a moment and plug America Daps on your favorite social media feed. All right. I want you to take the time to do this. This is critical. You all have Twitter. You all have Instagram. You all have Facebook. Find your favorite episode and share and put a little plug in. That is so important. If you're wondering, whoa, how can I help out Doug? Well, that is really helpful. And tag me so I know that you're doing it. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Seriously, I love this. I love hearing from you. It's so useful to me as I recruit guests and I just know who's out there listening. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time. <laughs>